Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Coaches, today before we get started, I want to thank our sponsor, CoachPad. Uh, no matter if you draw scout cards by hand or use a program on your computer, CoachPad will give you back time by never stuffing a binder again before heading out to practice. First 13.3-inch electronic device allowing coaches to clearly display scout cards outdoors in the sun has been a game changer for programs this past fall and those currently playing all across the country. This new technology allows coaches to coach and not the monotonous task of stuffing and dealing with binders on the practice field. Check out the CoachPad and CoachPad Mini on thecoachpad.com. Please make sure you check out our sponsors, our affiliates. And here is another episode of the Gap Down Backer podcast. Um, welcome back to another episode of the Gap Down Backer podcast. Um, today we have a very special guest. Um, he is the he's a longtime uh, college strength and conditioning coach who most recently finished up a stint at L- a long stint at LSU. Um, he is uh, strength and conditioning coach Tommy Moffitt. Coach, how you doing? Doing great. Uh, thanks for having me on. No problem, Coach. I, I appreciate you coming on. I really do. Um, I, I think most people know that you've spent the past, what, God, almost 20 years at LSU, but I don't think most people know the kind of prior. So how do you, like, kind of what has your career path to the point to today looked like? Yeah, so um, I'm originally from Springfield, Tennessee, small farming community in middle Tennessee, and uh, I played football at Tennessee Tech, and while I was there, you know, I had a great strength coach and mentor in Jack Williamson, and he motivated me to be a strength coach, just being around him and uh, watching the amount of fun and joy that he had for what he did. So uh, I set my course, you know, to be a high school strength coach. And uh, so after graduation, man, I, I couldn't get a job. Uh, you know, this was graduated in 1987, uh, December of 1987, and um, I struggled finding a place. So uh, I'd been a a seasonal recreator for the state park system. Uh, You know, back then in the summertime, um, they didn't let us, the only way you got to stay in school in the summertime is if you had bad grades and were risking your eligibility. So I would just find a a high school that would let me train. And I would work at the state park uh, that was close to it as a recreation director. So I did that. After graduation, I went back to the state park system uh, and was a recreation director. Um, I spent a little bit of time at a fitness center. Uh, I went to work for GNC for a little while. All the all the time trying to get a job as a high school strength coach. And um, 
So then I got tired of General Nutrition Center, went back to the state park system. And finally, um, in August of uh, 1988, um, I got a phone call from Coach J.T. Curtis at John Curtis Christian School in New Orleans. And uh, their strength coach had left to go to Tulane. And he wanted to know if I was interested in the job. And uh, I begged him for the job right there on the spot. And um, so he offered me the job. And I, you know, packed my tent up and all the stuff because I was living in a tent at, at the time at the state park. I wasn't homeless, but I was living in a tent at the state park and uh, packed everything up and took off and moved to New Orleans. And um, I, I spent six years as a high school strength coach, uh, didn't teach class. So it was actually pretty neat. In 88, I was a full-time strength coach instead of our athletes, both male and female, uh, going to PE. Uh, they came into the weight room. We had a separate PE teacher. Um, and so uh, while I was there, I was the offensive line coach. I was the head wrestling coach, assistant track coach. And then we had a competitive weightlifting team as well. So that was a great experience. And again, I did that for six years. And um, uh, one summer, um, uh, the summer of 1994, uh, I was on the phone talking to Randy Sanders, who just retired. I just found out Randy was the head coach at East Tennessee State University. He had a great year this year, but he retired. But Randy was the uh, uh, wide receiver coach at the time at the University of Tennessee. And uh, they had a position open up in the weight room and Randy called uh, and said, you know, our strength coach asked us to call around and find somebody that might be interested. And so I drove to Knoxville and interviewed for the job. And uh, so I got my first collegiate coaching job at the University of Tennessee. And I worked for a man named John Stuckey, a great strength coach, uh, the head coach for a long time. And, um, I spent four years there during what I call the Peyton Manning years. And uh, we were playing Nebraska in the Orange Bowl in Miami. And um, I guess that was 1998. We'd beaten Auburn in the SEC championship. It was Peyton's senior year and we were playing Nebraska. And I was in the lobby of the hotel. And um, this guy came in and introduced himself, said, hello, I'm Larry Coker. I'm the offense coordinator for the University of Miami, and I'm looking for Philip and John. And that was Philip Former and John sucking my boss. And I said, and I was sitting outside the meeting room. I said, well, they're in a staff meeting right now. And, uh, you know, I'm sitting here waiting for them. When the staff meeting breaks, goes back then, I wasn't even allowed in the staff meeting. So... I was sitting outside the door and he goes, you mind if I sit down? And I said, absolutely not. So coach Coker and I sat there and had a great conversation in about 25 minutes into the conversation. Uh, he asked me uh, if I'd be interested in coming over the next day and meeting Butch. And uh, he said, you know, we just let our strength coach go. And I was coming over here to talk to John and Philip and see if they knew anybody that might be interested. And so uh, I interviewed for the University of Miami job uh, the day before the Orange Bowl. So 
that was our last practice that day. And then the next day was our walkthrough. So instead of going through the walkthrough, I drove over, my wife and I, my young, my oldest son, Clay, we drove over to Core Gables. I interviewed for the job and got that job and was only there two years. And uh, similar situation, my wife and I were driving with our two boys. So we had two, two boys then, Aaron and Clay. So we were driving to... Uh, uh jacksonville we were playing georgia tech in the gator bowl and my mother-in-law calls and said hey lsu just hired a new head football coach nick saban and the first coach he hired was pete jenkins and wouldn't it be neat if they called tommy and i my wife gets all excited and i said honey lsu's got a good strength coach they're not going to call so that night we checked into the hotel and our phone rang and it was coach Pete Jenkins and uh, he put me on line with coach Saban. And um, so after about a 20 minute conversation, coach, you know, wanted me to become, you know, come to Baton Rouge and interview. So, you know, it was kind of a, you know, uh, I fell into every job I ever got, man. Uh, and I applied for so many jobs right out of college and, uh, never got a single job uh, that I applied for. And then the last four jobs that I've had have just been dream jobs. Uh, coach Curtis is, you know, I think the second winningest coach of all time. Um, and then I've worked for Philip Fulmer and Butch Davis and, and then here, you know, working for coach Saban and coach Miles and coach O has just been phenomenal. So uh, I feel for all those guys out there that were just like myself and, you know, applying for all those jobs, but sometimes it pays, you know, to be lucky, uh, I guess, uh, but that's how it all went. I mean, I, that's, that's great coaching. I, that's kind of, I mean, that's how I ended up with pretty much my, I had stopped looking for head coaching jobs a, a year ago. And then it kind of just fell like my, my, AD at Fairborn came to me and said, this job was open. Would you be interested? Like, cause they just, the two ADs have been talking the other day about an opening. So I kind of, I get exactly what you mean. Um, kind of going from there is, I mean, I say this all the time, especially high school and college strength coaches see the athletes more than any, anybody else, more than coaches, everybody, um, especially at the college level, cause of all the restrictive rules they, I mean, you guys are the culture essentially. Like you set the foundation and, and you've done that for essentially over 30 years. Um, outside of the strength and conditioning part, I think, and, and I've kind of seen some parts reading articles and responses to you now being a, a free agent strength coach. Um, what impact do you think you've had or what, or what have you tried to teach the kind of student athletes you've been able to work with for the past 30 years? Yeah, uh, probably the first thing uh, is patience. Um, you know, and not just today, but I was the same way when I was, you know, 17, 18 years old. Um, you know, we all, you know, we all want immediate self-gratification and uh, we, we want everything to happen now. Uh, so patience is huge, man. And um, you know, and I've learned through life that things aren't always going to go your way. And it's important. Uh, I think it's really important uh, to be where your feet are. And I think that's one thing that really helped me 
when I lost my job this past winter, you know, just uh, being patient and, you know, uh, it helps when I still had a contract. Uh, I was still getting paid, but, you know, I had to just focus every day myself on uh, being where my feet are. And then uh, I think it's important that you teach kids, uh, you know, to try to do something every day in order to be successful and, um, you know, and focus like, and, and this is a quote from Coach Saban, uh, is, you know, focus on the process and, uh, you know, because like the NFL is such a, is such, you know, a, a big target for all these young men. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of times they worry more about uh, the results and instead of the process. And so, you know, number one, it was just teaching them to be, you know, patient. And then, and then, you know, as a strength coach, the, the most important thing I think outside of that is the, the importance of hard work um, for a lot of the guys that we recruited and we signed high school was easy for them, you know, because we got the top 5% of all the high school football players in America. And uh, they were always, you know, a big fish uh, coming to LSU. And then uh, the SEC is a whole different animal, man. And um, those guys have to learn to work hard. And the ones that were able to focus on the process and work hard every day and do something to put themselves uh, in front of the guy, you know, that they're competing against on our team, uh, the better their success was. And um, teamwork, you know, that's one of those things that, you know, we all take for granted sometimes that we think that, you know, kids are going to automatically buy into uh, teamwork. And uh, it's, to me, it's something that is super important. And, you know, as long as you're successful and you're winning, people don't really think that much about it. But as soon as a little bit of adversity steps in, the offense doesn't play very well, or the defense gave up some points, or special teams, you know, turned the ball over or gave up a big touchdown, people start pointing fingers, man. And, uh, of, of the teams that, that I coached on that were the most successful were the ones who never pointed fingers at the other position players or the ones that, uh, were blaming it on coaches or play calling. And that's probably not something you see a lot of, uh, in high school. I think probably the thing that you have most, I know when I was a coach, you know, the parental involvement sometimes can be kind of tough. But for us, you know, our players, you know, when you have the message boards and all the stuff that you have in college and social media uh, and you have all these people that have no idea what's going on in the dynamics of this, you know, of of the team, uh, you know, and our building, you know, we had this gigantic building. There were probably 200 employees in this building and and, and, you know, we were all dialed in and trying to do the best we could. And you have all of this noise on the outside of the building, man. It is such a huge distraction. So not just myself, but everybody would talk to these guys all the time about teamwork and accepting responsibility for what 
your role is on the team and focusing on what you're supposed to do and then blocking out all that other noise. And then um, the last thing is probably uh, the importance of getting an education. Um, you know, because, er, you know, every player that we signed and we're, we, we, you know, we're fortunate. There's been times uh, really for the majority of the time that I was at LSU, we were either first or second the entire time on number of players that were getting drafted or the number of active players in the NFL. And so everyone thinks that when they sign their scholarship at LSU that they're going to go play in the NFL, but that's not the case. Uh, there's a few guys that are blessed with that opportunity. Um, uh, but everyone else, you know, they're going to have to go to work at some time. And then the NFL is not going to last forever. Uh, and, you know, that was something that was huge making, you know, you have to make them go to class. Um, and, you know, it was in our team meeting room, uh, their education, number one was number one. And, you know, if they're, if they're not eligible, they can't play. So they're never going to reach their ultimate goal of playing in the NFL if they're not eligible. So I would, you know, I would say those are probably the biggest things uh, that, that I focused on outside of the strength and conditioning. Uh, you know, and the way I put it, uh, when people ask me, you know, that's uh, the strength that we tried to develop uh, at LSU, and I say we, I mean our entire staff, uh, was the type of strength that lasts a lifetime. And, you know, you got to develop strong attitude, strong personality, strong lifestyle, strong habits, and then uh, a positive outlook on life because, you know, things aren't always, like I said earlier, things aren't always going to go as planned. And you got to have a skill set um, of different tools and things that are going to help you in your day-to-day -day life once you know football's over with yeah no perfect coach I mean that's I mean I think I think if everybody can strive to at least some of those if not all those I mean that, that that'll lead to a very good culture within their program kind of continuing from that as you look at stuff uh, at things you've taught your your players and then you've had time to reevaluate um especially as you've talked on podcasts like with me and other people and done interviews and had time to reflect and go through data um after all your time at not just LSU but kind of your whole strength time what what do you think as you move forward um and look towards maybe another uh, strength and conditioning job uh what changes or improvements or things you like you know I could have done this better that better what yeah. are you how are you looking forward I mean, kind of in reflecting, what, what, where are you kind of at with changes and improvements? Yeah, so, you know, the means and methods really haven't changed uh, since I was a high school coach. Um, it was funny, uh, after you're at a place for so long, you end up coaching the sons of guys that you coached earlier in your career. And so the dads, whether it was kids that I coached in, in fact, I got a text from uh, a dad of a young man that I coached here at LSU the other day. And he, he said uh, his son's working in Dallas, Texas now. And uh, his son texted him and said, um, my boss asked me yesterday 
if I wanted to come in two hours early tomorrow. And he said, that's like Coach Moffitt telling you that tomorrow's workout is voluntary, but your butt better be there. <laughs> um, so I really feel like the means and methods that we used were pretty solid. Uh, you know, if you want to get strong, you got to lift heavy weights. And if you want to get faster, you got to run fast. You know, that's, that's pretty basic. Um, but probably the biggest adjustment over the last couple of years uh, was probably in something that I've really spent a lot of time on now is making an adjustment to some of the new NCAA rules that allow the coaches a lot more time uh, with the players during the off season. Um, when I first started coaching in college, especially, uh, the, the football staff had no contact with the players during the off season. And anything that the players did, voluntary. And it was truly voluntary. And I can remember, uh, you know, at, and there's no better example than Peyton Manning. And uh, uh, Peyton, when, when we were at the University of Tennessee, we had seven on seven. Uh, but it was just Peyton, the wide receivers, and the DBs. And it was nothing that was structured at all. They'd show up and jog around, loose up for a little while, and they'd start throwing the ball around. And They'd spend 30 or 40 minutes, you know, running some plays and real informal and guys would leave and come at different times and same way it was. And, and the other positions never met. They never met. You'd have individuals that would meet and do, you know, defensive linemen do sled work and offensive linemen would do some boards and shoots or, you know, just some in basic individual stuff that you do every day, some pass blocking stuff, but it was never O-line versus D-line ever. Same thing at Miami. And then when Nick got here, uh, we did a little bit more. It was more formal. And that was something that Jimbo really did a good job with, uh, with organizing it. And there would be a script that Jimbo of plays that Jimbo wanted them to run, but that was it. And the O-line and D-line seldom uh, did any extra uh, as a group. And then it began to progress. Well, you know, after COVID is probably, um, I mean, we did some in 2019 where, it, you know, because, well, really 2018, because Joe, when Joe Burrow got here, uh, it, Joe was really good with it and, Joe would go throw every day. My son was a tight end and uh, those guys would even meet on Saturday and it would just be Joe and the tight ends. So he, he was such a smart guy. So, you know, he, he threw a lot with the receivers and the running backs and stuff throughout the week, but Saturday it was just like a day with the tight ends. And so and more and more 2018 2019 and then in 2020 after covid the nc2a changed the rules uh for the month of june the players were not allowed to touch a ball it was strength and conditioning only then in the month of july they actually allotted time where the football staff could be with the players and that was supposed to offset the amount of work that they missed from not doing spring ball 
And then that started progressing more and more and more uh, to the point where now, and I'm out of, you know, I'm out of it now, but I've talked to a lot of guys in the business where uh, they're actually calling them OTAs and you're allowed to have a football. I don't think you're allowed to wear a helmet, um, but some of the schools are actually calling them OTAs and you can have a ball. And um, so it's highly organized. So, so I said all of that to say this, that uh, for years and years and years, your all season was built around physical preparation yeah. and doing everything that you could do to put the most powerful, the most dynamic, well-conditioned player that you could possibly, you know, spend your time with on the field come training camp. But now there's this shift where they are allowing the coaches much more time for tactical preparation. So that is something, um, in fact, I've talked to a lot of uh, strength and conditioning coaches where they have actually, because they're doing it, you know, so I think it's four hours a week. So the strength staff has four hours a week. The football staff has four hours a week, which is, you know, normally we would have as a strength staff eight hours a week. So they've cut our time in half. And so a lot of coaches are shifting more to a like kind of like an in-season training program during the off-season. So you're limiting the amount of physical preparation. So the product is going to be a little different come training camp. And that is probably one of the things um, – that I have really thought about more uh, with this time off because I know that it's constantly evolving. And so now the NFL, I mean, the uh, college, the NC2A is becoming more and more like the NFL, but, you know, because now it would be different if it were like baseball and the NFL has 17 and 18 year olds, but they don't, you know, they're getting, you know, 19, 20, 21 year old guys that are more physically developed because of the amount of time that they're spending in college. But then you start reducing the amount of physical preparation that they're getting in college, then you're going to have a little different product once they get to the NFL. So it's going to be interesting to see how that dynamic all plays out. And then probably the last thing is uh, with all the data, and we were a data-driven program, uh, but we did not have a, uh, some people call them a, a director of sports science or, yep. you know, whatever you want to call it, a physical preparation specialist, because they had got all different kinds of names for them. But <laughs> so each person on my staff was responsible for a certain technology. So we used the force plate and um, uh, Rodney Hill, who is now, uh, at Duke University, uh, Rodney did the force plate. Jeremy Jacobs did our perch or the velocity-based training system. He's also at Duke. Jake Riedel, uh, who handled all of our GPS data, um, is now an assistant at Army. Uh, Blake McCall, um, who handled our uh, NORD board, is now the uh, the head string coach at Jacksonville State, and on and on and on. So. Our staff handled all of this, whereas uh, looking back, um, if we would have had someone that was responsible for only collecting, uh, interpreting, and reporting to the head football coach and staff, I think that would have been better. Um, um, 
uh, of all the things that we looked at, this is an area where I think that we could have done a much better job, um, not necessarily in the data that we were collecting or how it was analyzed or interpreted, but the efficiency that it was reported to the coach and the rest of the staff. Uh, because my guys, you know, when practice was over and they'd been there, you know, all day training athletes and some of them training more than one sport. And then when practice was over, they'd have to sit there for an hour and a half. Sometimes, you know, with these cloud-based systems, it takes forever for a practice to download on the computer, you know, to go to yeah. be sucked out of little pucks and then sent to the cloud. So those guys would spend, you know, an hour and a half, some nights, two hours downloading that data. And then they would go home and bang it out on their computers uh, at home or then come in early the next day. And so I was getting all this information and we put together a packet and then we would go present it to the head coach. And um, that, that process right there, uh, we needed to do that a little differently. Now, you know, we tried to hire directors, you know, but it's, it's getting more and more popular today than what it was even last year. Uh, but that's something that, you know, if I had to do it all over again, uh, I would definitely change that and, um, and make sure that we had somebody was that, you know, that was responsible who could actually go up there and spend time with each individual coach and go over uh, each position in each player. Cause a lot of that data, sometimes, you know, you look at it as a whole, but what uh, we have found, and especially now that I've gone, you know, that I've left, that it's really more important that you not compare player to player, but you look at each individual player separately. Uh, because, you know, the organism is different. Everybody has different DNA and everybody responds differently to a training stimulus. You know, although we're all homo sapiens, you know, uh, we're all different. And whether it's mental, physical or emotional, everybody responds to stress differently. And so uh, I think that would be a huge improvement over the way that we did things in the past. I want to rearrange my questions a little bit because I want to build off kind of what you just said there about testing. Yeah. Um, just kind of, I mean, not every high school obviously is blessed with a bunch of technology. I think, it, I think, right. I, I think, I think it's getting better. Um, I think it, it really depends on the state and the, your district's funds, but I think it's right. getting more affordable and it's getting better. But for, for like high school coaches who don't have necessarily a lot of technology to do the testing or maybe a lot of staff, uh, right. how would you recommend they test or look for fatigue with their student athletes? Yeah, coach, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, uh, so I'm going to give you, a, I, and I don't remember who told me this, but, um, you know, strength. Oh, I know who, who, who said it, uh, George Yarno. I don't know if you know coach George Yarno, but, uh, he used to say all the time that football, is really simple, but it's been made difficult over the years by people's egos. Yeah. Well, strength and conditioning is really the same way. You know, I started it by saying, if you want to get stronger, lift heavy weights, if you want to get faster, run fast. Well, data and, and testing and all of that, 
is really the same way. Um, so I have a buddy, uh, I actually coached him in high school, who is the assistant director of strength and conditioning uh, at the Florida Gators right now for football. Um, uh, he, he spent some time with the New York Giants in the NFL. And his job then for the New York Giants uh, was was all of this, uh, all of the all the data driven uh, stuff that you or all the data that you get from the different technologies. And so I was sitting there talking. His name is Joe Downs. And so I was talking to Joe. I actually coached him in high school. Uh, he, Scott Cochran from Alabama, and Vic Valoria, who is now the head strength coach at Baylor, they were all teammates of ours uh, or teammates of one another at John Curtis. So. Joe, uh, after leaving here, he and Vic went to FSU where they won a national championship. And then Joe left to go to the Giants. So Joe dove heavily in all the different technologies. And one day we were talking and he says, coach, you know, I honestly think that if you were patient enough and you broke it down right, you could do a lot of this stuff that we're using all this technology with by a simple questionnaire, a wellness questionnaire. And so he broke it down to me. And, you know, a lot of these wellness questionnaires, they have like five questions. And then each question, you know, has a score of one through five. But Joseph's coach, sometimes that's too much for even a professional football player to really grasp. And so um, Joe says, coach, all you need is to do a daily wellness score. And I'm going to tell you, just same way he told me. He said, uh, the, the, the questionnaire has three answers, all right? Number one, I'm feeling great. And they do this every day when they first get to school, okay? You have a little box and you have a post of notes or whatever, how you want to do it. And when they walk in the school, they, can, they go to a certain place in the school and fill this out. Number one, I'm feeling great today. Number two, I feel okay. And then number three, I'm sore. So feeling great, feeling okay, feeling sore, nothing more. That's all you need, okay? You don't have to do it every day, really. You can only, you know, Monday is an important day because it lets you know what their physical and mental state is for the, for the week. And then I'd probably do it again on Wednesday because Wednesday and Thursday, you have two more days, you know, to actually you know, get them out on the practice field. So Monday and Wednesday, do that. Then what you want to do Monday, uh, Monday morning, after all the players fill out their little piece of paper, drop it in a box, you have one of your staff members go get that, okay? And then he's going to enter each player's score in a spreadsheet, okay? Now, what you want to do is do a scissor chart where you can compare different groups, but you want to break it down, number one, by receivers, okay, or by position. So you break it down by position, you break it down offense and defense, you break it down as a team, and then you can also, because with Excel, it's easy, and then you break it down first, second, and third team, okay? So then uh, that coach that breaks that down, then he'll print out a report, and he'll look because with us and our football team at LSU, when you looked at the distances that your wide receivers and your defensive backs covered, especially if they were on special teams, 
those guys are going to cover more distance than anybody else on the team. And it's not even a, a, you can't even compare it to anyone. Or like if you, you know, a lot of times we would have guys that weren't starters on our team, but they were on, they were on the, the core, the four core special teams, kickoff, kickoff, return, punt and punt return. Those were the four core. And those guys would get, really high mileage and if one of those if those guys were a backup running back tight end wide receiver at db and they were on the four core special teams their distances would be off the chart as well so that was something where you know that's something that you you could look at and then the other thing you find out that maybe a particular position coach on your team is overworking a particular group and then you can find that, especially sometimes with the O-line and D-line. Now, D-line was a little different, but a lot of times you'll find that the offensive line coach, because of all the X's and O's, and, you know, every week, you know, and, and especially in high school, you see a lot of different types of defense. In college, you know, there's – you know, there's not as many differences in college, but then you see those teams, or if you're uh, if you're on the D line, you see all these different formations that you got to prepare for, and if you're on the O line, you're going to see all these. You know, they're stemming before the snap. Uh, or they're shifting and moving around, and backers are walking up and back, and people are coming, you know, from the edge, and you end up spending more time doing that then you do practice, you know, and you know how it is. I played offensive line. So we love that, you know, coaches standing over there and we're doing walkthroughs all the time. We're not banging on each other. And then you miss out on work. And so that wellness score, I think is really something that you can do at the high school level or at any level, high school, college and pro and get as much out of that as you can all the fancy GPS stuff. And then you put it in, and then you have your guy make a scissor chart where he can compare different groups to one another and look at offense versus defense, uh, look at the difference, and you just color code. You go wide receiver plus special team, and you just code it that way, and then you can separate it, and you can actually see who on your team is being overworked and then you know, there's some, you know, there's other guys that you got to be careful. You know, you have those guys when they find out that you're changing practice, well, giving guys breaks, then you're going to have a guy where he's his elbow or knees hurt every day. Yeah. And, you know, there's certain guys that you can trust and you can't trust. But that to me is one of the, the easiest things that you can do. Now, there's another thing that you can do. Uh, and we did this when I was at John Curtis and it's called the just jump mat. And uh, it's uh, it's that mat. They use it a lot of high school combines. And even now, a lot of colleges are using it instead of the vertex, you know, that you get vertical jump with uh, for football camps and stuff. So you take the just jump mat. And I used to do this at John Curtis in the 90s. Uh, we'd have our team come in in the morning. All they had to do was circle through the weight room before they went to first period class. And it takes a couple, I mean, it takes five seconds. They step on the mat, they jump, and I'd write the vertical jump down. 
And then I had it, you know, this is back a long time ago when you had DOS-based programs and I had Lotus 1, 2, 3, and it's like Excel is today. And I had a spreadsheet and you could see which players were tired and which players were not. It's simple. And there's a couple of other little things that are more in depth than that, but the wellness score, one, two, three, I, you know, I feel great. I feel okay. I feel sore. And then the just jump mat, make coach, you can get so much data from that and it's going to be really helpful. And then, you know, you just make an adjustment. And again, you don't necessarily have to make position wide changes or program wide changes unless you see some, you know, and you chart this on a graph and you can, now there's always ebb and flow throughout the season. Yeah. But when you start seeing guys crash, uh, and, you know, you don't have uh, the ability to look at mileage and force plates and stuff like that, but you know that a guy's uh, vertical jump is going down and you know that he's saying he's feeling sore. You chart that on a graph. And again, it's simple with Excel. And if both of those two things line up, he's sore and his vertical jump is going down. And if this lasts for consecutive days or consecutive weeks, then you know you got a problem there and you're going to have to back off on that individual. Right. If you see your, let's say, for instance, you see your defensive line and you look and if you separate it by first, second, and third team, if you look and you've got a bunch of your uh, guys that your is your starting defensive line, and they're all starting to show a downward trend in those two scores, and you compare them against your second or third teamers, or you compare them against the offensive line or your linebackers, then you know that you got a problem and you got to back off on those guys, spell them a little bit. You probably don't have as much depth as you need, but find opportunities where you can work those young guys and get them reps in practice and give those older guys a little chance to back up, you know, back off. And that will do you some good. That's perfect coach. I mean, I, I, Got half a page of notes to stop what you said there. So, and kind of building off of that, because I mean, continuing with high school, um, but this will this will debut August first. Um, so most of us will be getting started at that point, like full full like I mean, full prep two days, one half one days, whatever whatever depend on your state, whatever the rules are, blah blah. Because um, I've listened to your in season i think during covid you gave a whole presentation on in season lifting which was fantastic i have a whole nother page of notes just off of that um but what recommendations as, as would you give guys who begin on august 1st high school coaches um in terms of their strength and their in terms of lifting speed and agility and conditioning at and contact as everything begins yeah well first off it would be based on uh your team's level of preparation leading up to training camp. Yeah. If you're, you know, if you have, you know, if you feel like your team trained well all summer long, you know, you had great attendance, uh, you have a mature team and you feel confident that, you know, you're going to be able to field a, a squad of guys that are going to play well for you. That's a little different than if you've just taken over a team, uh, you didn't have a well-organized off season, 
uh, or, or summer and you're young or the state uh, association uh, and the federal, and I don't know uh, my, so I know what my son does at Catholic High uh, here in Baton Rouge and they give them a week off, uh, you know, before they have to have a week off before training camp starts. Um, so I would first take all of that into consideration. Um, but I've always been of the belief that if you spent the entire summer training, practicing, doing seven on seven, um, that you should give them a little bit of time off lifting wise so that they can adjust to the length and the intensity of practice. And I know from, you know, we've been tracking our team with GPS since 2012. We've tracked every practice, uh, every time we went outside and ran or we even, you know, everything that we did outside of the weight room, we tracked with GPS. Nothing compared to the first three days of training camp with distance and velocity. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, you, you saved your money your entire life to buy a Corvette and you go buy that Corvette. And the first thing that you want to do is go burn the tires off of it. You know, you don't buy a Corvette to cruise around town, you know, going 25 miles an hour. You want to get it out on the, on the open road somewhere and let that sucker rip. And that's the way most football coaches are. And that's the way our team was. No matter how much our staff said, this is a walkthrough pace, our guys were going 100 miles an hour and they didn't have equipment on. So you're much faster. And I, as, a, as a guy that was watching all of these velocities and stuff, the first thing I wanted to do, I couldn't wait until we put the pads on them because they slow down once you put the pads on. Uh, so we, again, we always gave our guys a, a break from lifting. So they would get a break from lifting. They would get probably, you know, any, and it depended on the school calendar and the NC2A calendar, but our guys usually got seven or eight days prior to training camp off from lifting. And then we gave them the first week of training camp off from lifting. And when I say lifting, that's like cleans and squats and bench press and, you know, anything with the barbell. Now, uh, we would always have weight room times in our training camp schedule where they would come to the weight room and we would do, um, and I'm going to put it in quotation marks, but recovery stuff with them. Uh, we would do... Uh, not hard stretching, not developmental type stretching, but we would do some, uh, some relaxation, I guess you could say, stretching, uh, because stretching will make you sore, just like practice. Uh, foam rolling, um, a lot of stuff with lacrosse balls, soft tissue work, um, uh, the uh, Normatech boots, uh, we would do hot and cold contrast, we would make them take their supplements and things of that nature. And that was always for the first week. Guys, necks were always sore. And we didn't neck 
neck was prescribed in every workout that I've ever written as a strength coach. But as soon as you put that helmet on and guys are sprinting at, you know, max velocity, whipping that head around to catch a ball or the, you know, they're bobbing and swatting on the defensive line and pass blocking with that helmet up there on that head, it starts getting whipped around and those necks would be sore as heck. So we had a routine that we did, uh, to alleviate some of the pain in the neck mus muscles. Uh, so we did that. And then after that, the next week, uh, during that time that was allotted, we would start doing um, neck, we would start strengthening the neck or, you know, adding a little intensity to the work that we did for the neck, the rotator cuff, uh, ankles, hips, and low back. Um, you know, the prob problematic areas. So, so we spent a lot of time, you know, uh, the rotator cuff, you can't do enough, not necessarily just for the rotator cuff, but the muscles of the shoulder. Uh, and the way it is in college now too, you can have a padded practice and a walkthrough uh, every day. Uh, but, you know, even those walkthrough practices, no matter how much the coaches told them this is a walkthrough pace. Those guys are coming off the line of scrimmage and whacking each other. So we were always spending time, not just with the rotator cuff, but the muscles of the shoulder, the muscles in the low back, the core, you know, because again, you're sprinting full speed, you're rotating, you're, you got guys clubbing each other, running backs are sticking their foot in the ground, changing direction at high velocity with the football in their hand. So we'd do a lot of core work that second week. We'd work on the muscles in the hip, um, do like Copenhagen exercises. We had a bunch of circuits, uh, you know, single and double leg hip extensions, Copenhagen's uh, hip extension, hip flexion, um, add and abduction, and then working on the ankles, uh, we have a little circuit where we'd have the guys walk on the field on their heels for 10 yards, walk on their toes for 10 yards, walk on the outside of their foot for 10 yards, walk on the insides of their feet for 10 yards. This was barefoot. And then they'd walk 10 yards and then they would do 10 yards on their heel, 10 yards on their toe, 10 yards on the outside of the foot, 10 yards on the insides of the feet. And we do that down and back on the football field blows them up. Uh, but, you know, and we do that for a week. And then I would say, okay, now you've got 15 minutes to do anything in the weight room that you want to do. And some of the guys would go get a bar and start squatting with a bar. Some guys, that, uh, you know, automatically start, you know, bench pressing. You seldom see anybody doing cleans or snatches or jerks. Mm -hmm. uh, some guys would just go uh, sit down on a bench and do some dumbbell curls because they were exhausted. And then uh, the third week of training camp, uh, we would start our regular in-season uh, training program. And we would train two days a week because the third week of training camp was always the week before game week. And that was our last uh, scrimmage that we would do. And it was always a situation. And it was regardless of what coach that I coached for that last scrimmage of training camp was always a situational scrimmage with a lot of substitutions, you know, running the punt team on the field and all making sure you got 11 guys on the field, um, you know, doing two minute and all that type of stuff. 
so, you know, you're getting in game mode now. So we would start that all season, I mean, in season training program. And it was always low volume with the barbells, same extra. Oh, and it always coincided with the first day of school too. So that was always <laughs> miserable. And, um, you know, we would, uh, you know, 50%, something like in the squats, we would go as low as 45%. Uh, 50% somewhere, uh, bench press, you know, for some guys, they could go 60 or 70% on the bench, but real low percentages and low volume, like four sets of three, four sets of four, uh, you know, just so you didn't make them sore. And then the next week, the week of the first game um, was, you know, a regular in-season training program. We would you know, go up a little bit in the percentages. So that's it, I guess, and, you know, it for the lifting part of it. Um, and then um, for the speed and agility, you know, we did so much at LSU um, in preparation for that, you know, because they're in college and there was no excuse. And we averaged my entire 22 years here, you know, we would average – 99.3, 99.4% attendance year round. There was no vacations with your parents or anything like that. And our guys, now we had a rule here that you could be excused from anything as long as you called, but if you didn't call and it was an excuse and they knew that they, whatever they missed, they were going to make it up the very next day or days following, you know, when they came back. So our guys didn't miss workouts. We had great preparation and we, you know, so the energy system that you use in football is the ATP PC or a lactic energy system, you know, uh, 80% of all the stuff, even with tempo offenses, 80% of everything that they do is that particular energy system. And then probably another, you know, 15 to 20% um, is the anaerobic lactic acid system. And so we focused on that the entire month of July and got great preparation. And even if you're lifting, it's the same energy system. The same energy system that you use to play football is the exact same energy system that you use to do a set of five back squats or a set of five bench press or a set of three and power clean. It's the same energy system without the lactic acid work and the aerobic work, you know, uh, so aerobic conditioning builds the site, you know, that increases the size of your gas tank which allows you to recover between bouts of either a lactic or lactic acid work. And so we didn't feel like it was necessary to condition the team that much. Uh, and, and secondly, our guys were so competitive that we had to tell our guys to slow down. I mean, um, you know, it, they, they understood the states that, you know, that, uh, were, uh, were there, they, they understood, you know, those guys are trying to make it to the NFL. They want that $10 million signing bonus. So you'd have to tell those guys to chill out. So the key for us was placing an emphasis on practice tempo and making sure that the coaches 
And I, I alluded to this earlier, making sure that the coaches didn't spend the entire five or 10 minute period standing around. And so the first thing that I would do when I got the report is I would look at the differences between the wide receivers and defensive backs, tight ends, uh, running backs and linebackers and quarterbacks, and then offensive and defensive line and making sure that everyone is doing the amount of work that is necessary. Uh, and at the, at the pace uh, necessary to condition them to play in the game because we knew the demands of the game, all right, because of GPS. We knew the distance, uh, the velocities, uh, the number of high-intensity accelerations and decelerations that they did. So we wanted to make sure that the practice was preparing them for the game. And so we didn't feel it was necessary to condition our guys. In fact, and the best example is in 2019, we never, from the first day of training camp until we walked off the field for the national championship game against Clemson, that team never ran once. Now, the really the only time in the last 10 years of my career at LSU that we ran our team was for fighting in practice. Yeah. Uh, now when coach Saban was here, he had boxing gloves and I was, I was the, uh, I was the guy in the ring. I was the referee. So, uh, and our equipment manager uh, had the boxing gloves and you had to have more than one pair of boxing gloves. But if a fight broke out at practice with Nick, he would say, all right, you want to fight? And the whole team would circle up and they'd put the gloves on and I was the referee and they would box. Well, you know, you can't do that anymore. All right. It's probably, <laughs> it's probably smart that you don't do that anymore. Uh, so then when, you know, and, and when teams, cause fighting gets you nowhere. And, you know, as a coach, especially if you, if you played football in the seventies, you know, a good scrap at practice sometimes isn't that bad, but it's bad when your quarterback, you know, is fighting or it's bad when your best wide receiver is fighting because or your running back because one of those guys breaks a hand or, you know, hurts his knee or something like that. And a fist fight, it could screw up your entire season. So uh, Coach Miles and, and Coach O would say, all right, you want to fight? Everybody on the line. And we would run perfect sprints. And, you know, it's a series of 40-yard sprints. So we didn't – I mean, Coach, we didn't have to condition our team. Um, and you can – you know, it's kind of uh, – well, even when I was at John Curtis uh, – so I coached at John Curtis from 1987 – no, 1988 to 1994, and while I was there, I was there for six seasons. We lost three playoff games and one regular season game. Yeah. So I lost four games in six seasons. We won three state championships the entire time I was there, and we played at the highest level that there is in the state of Louisiana, and we never, ever conditioned our team in season. Never. Uh, uh, we played every Friday night. 
And then on Saturday, we brought our team in and we would do what we call a stretching stride. And we would start the Saturday morning practices. I think we started at 8 a.m. And uh, the team would jog up and down the field a couple of times. And then I would stretch them out. We'd do, you know, we'd do a long, slow, easy stretch in the hot Louisiana sun. And then I would stride them up and down the field five or six times after that. And then we would break off and go to our position groups and we would review last night's game. And then we would give an individual, like a scouting report by our position, um, you know, and for offensive line, we would line them up and say, hey, this guy right here, you know, well, they're going to play an even front and these, this three technique right here has got five offers. And if you're not ready, he's going to wear your butt out. Um, and then after that, we would do uh, special teams uh, and we would always go over like uh, screens and draws because we were, we ran split back veer. So we would, we would review special teams and we'd run some screens and draws and that was it. But for six years as a high school program, we never conditioned. I guarantee you Coach Curtis isn't still in conditioning them. He's still coaching today. So uh, to sum it all up, and here's how I feel on this topic. If you spend 10 or 20 minutes after practice running your team in order to raise their level of fitness, then you didn't practice hard enough or smart enough. And I'm of the belief instead of spending 10 minutes in practice at the end of practice conditioning, why not do, and it depends on uh, what you need, but if you're, if you're not a tempo team and you're going to play a tempo team, then have your defense out there and, you know, take some coaches and some backup players and put them on offense and, practice tempo for 10 minutes at the end of practice or or if you feel that you're good at that then run the old-fashioned pursuit drill at the end of practice you know get something out of it um and then if you're an offense and um you could you know so we've done different things here uh at lsu where you would spend uh five minutes of a tempo period or uh, five minutes of perfect plays, you know, where, so the first team lines up on the goal line and they run a play and they go to the 20 and they jog back to the 10. And then the second group of guys is lined up on the goal line. So on the snap of the ball, you got two groups running a perfect play and then they stop and they jog back 10 yards and line up. Now you got your third team out there. And now you got three groups of guys that are out there running the play and they finish the play, they jog back. And you do that one time, you know, down the field. Uh, and then you got a, a coach. If you're a high school program, you take three coaches and watch them do it. Or if you don't, if you're at a place where you only have, let's say you got five coaches, you do that with your offense and your defense at the same time. 
where you have, you know, you're running subs out, in and out, making sure you got 11 guys on the field. But I'm just, um, I'm not a big believer and never have been. Maybe it comes from my days of playing O-line, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I see funny stuff on, you know, when you tell your O-line hustle and it shows them doing that O-line trot, you know. Yeah. Um, that's usually the way if you condition the O-line anyway, you know, you get a slow trot with water squirting out of the eyelets in their shoe. And that's not doing you any good because you're performing something that is not done at the same speed with proper rest intervals. You know, football is, you know, depending on what type of play you're running, you know, it's six seconds, you know, followed by, you know, 30, you know, from the time the play ends, you know, even like I've seen the ball spotted, you know, the officials have slowed it down a little bit, but I mean, I've seen teams spot the ball at, you know, 11 seconds and then, you know, the ball is snapped, but that you can't maintain that and, and apply force, you know, because then now you're working on the lactic acid energy system where your body can't replenish the ATP you know, the adenosine triphosphate and all that stuff quickly enough. And it's more, uh, it's more lactic acid than ATP piece, you know, creatine phosphate or phosphocreatine, whatever, what you want to call it. But when that happens, you're not generating force quickly enough. And really you're not, you can't run the ball effectively then because your offensive line is tired and they can't generate force unless they're just that much more physically dominant than the other team. Uh, so usually you're just throwing the ball, you know? So to make a long story short, I'm just not a big believer in condition. No, no, that, hey, that was the perfect response, coach. I couldn't have asked for a better response. I would generally say that. Sure. I'm going to combine the next two though. Um, All right. So obviously our high school and college schedule are vastly different in terms of yep both from a practice and a lifting schedule. There's no ignorance on that. So right. one, I've heard you talk again, to go back to your in season thing, which I've, I've listened to and which was fantastic. Um, and you mentioned the college model, I think was like Monday, Thursday, if I remember correctly, right. mm-hmm. would a high school model be more Monday, Wednesday. And then at the same time with that, um, how would you, there's not as much, especially with limited staff resources, not as much individualization as there is in the college level. How would you recommend high school coaches on that, say a Monday, Thursday schedule or a Monday, Wednesday lifting schedule um, load and deload throughout the season? Yeah. Well, so I think Monday, Wednesday would be ideal. And I would even go so far as to say Monday, Wednesday, and then Friday for the guys that don't play in the game. And I'm, I was a big believer in that when I was coaching at John Curtis, and I'm still a big believer in that today. I think your young players must lift, uh, and we did it on Friday. And, and, you know, at first when we started doing it, they would complain, and I would say, son, listen to me. If you play, we're either winning, you know, by a big margin or we're losing by a big margin, so don't worry about it. And then uh, the guys that you're playing against – Uh, they're going to be gone next year and you're going to be playing against, you know, somebody maybe even bigger and better than what he is. So don't worry about it. Lift. So I'm a huge believer 
in a non so at LSU we called it uh, the non travel squad the guys that were not going to stay at the hotel and or get on the plane and fly to Auburn or somewhere but at John Curtis I just called it the developmental workout and those guys were going to do an off season I mean they would you know clean and bench and squat heavy on Friday and I told him not worry about it come on man we're getting better uh but I would definitely go on Monday and Wednesday and you can do it a couple of different ways. I did it, you know, ours was advanced PE. So those guys were going to go to the weight room instead of going to PE. Now on Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, those older guys, we had a stretching and recovery routine that they would do. So they would come to the weight room just like they were going to lift. But instead of lifting, they would warm up with us. And then they had something that I had written up. And they would sit over in the corner and do that along with some neck and rotator cuff. And if they got out of line, I'd go over there and whack one of them. And then on Friday, we would watch film. Even on Thursday, uh, you know, we had one of those AV carts with the TV and the VCR in the weight room. So on Thursday, uh, they would do their stretching routine and their neck and their rotator cuff and I would even have them do some single leg squats every once in a while if I didn't think we were getting enough squatting done. And then they would sit quietly and watch film. Uh, you know, they were good kids and we were successful and they understood the importance of it. And then on Fridays, uh, we would always like restripe, you know, uh, back in the old days when they first started putting that tape on their helmet, that stuff would come off, you know, halfway through the season. So I was the helmet, I was the helmet guy. And so we would let them restripe their helmets or clean the helmets and put new screws in it. You know, the time was being used wisely for us. Now, some guys don't have that athletic period where they can do that. So what you could do after school is have, you know, have the offense on Monday lift first and then the defense second. And then on Thursday, I mean, on Wednesday, switch it up. Uh, or if you have a big, you know, if you're in Texas and have one of those big weight rooms like we had at LSU, you could all go in there and live. And, you know, we used to, we would do that during bowl season. Uh, our weight room was big enough at LSU where we'd all work out at the same time during bowl prep uh, because they didn't have to go to class. So coach didn't want them coming over there twice a day. So we would all lift as a team uh, during bowl practice, and it went well. Um, and, and then just like in college, you know, I don't think the number of exercises have to be that great. Uh, I, don't, I don't believe in that. I think, um, you know, Monday for us has always been squats, bench, and some type of pull from the floor. Squats were always light. You know, of all the exercises that banged our guys up most in season was squatting. You know, one year, so we lost three playoff games when I was at John Curtis. And one of those years, I said, instead of back squatting with the guys that are playing in the game, we're going to try one-legged squats. That was the worst, and I, I, I'm embarrassed to even say it, but that was the worst, the largest um, – margin of victory to the other team than any time in my coaching career. So I learned my lesson. Um, so, but Monday for us, we'd start with squats. They were always lighter than anything that we did during the off season. 
and it was and they were done very explosively okay um and we'd start with like five sets of three and then go to six sets of two and then sometime you know we would even go eight sets of one sometimes kind of like louis simmons would do his deadlift uh bench uh, Monday was a light bench day for us, uh, again, because the shoulders were sore and it was always an auxiliary bench, something different like in dumbbell incline bench, dumbbell bench, or floor press or board press or close grip bench. So a different type of bench press. Now, the exercise that we hit the hardest in season was deadlift. And, the, and then we used the sumo deadlift because the bar, and you can measure it, uh, the bar doesn't travel as high because I have a wide base. And so the bar doesn't, the bar only travels just a little bit of distance. And so the body, the time under tension isn't as great as it is because with a back squat, you have vertical compression on the spine. And then with deadlift, it's more hip dominant anyway. And really, you know, especially if you're playing on the offensive and defensive line, it's more of a hip dominant position anyway. And those are the guys that benefit most from strength training in the end season. So we chose to do sumo. Now, if sumo didn't uh, feel right for a player, then we would do a uh, regular conventional yeah. deadlift, or we would even do a clean pull. But now the more you go to a conventional deadlift, then your time under tension is going to be longer because the barbell travels a greater distance. And we, you know, so the week that we lifted, the last week that we really hit the weights hard in 2019 was uh, the week that we played uh, Oklahoma in the semifinal game. And that week, you know, we lifted, we actually built the weight room in uh, the hotel in Atlanta, and we had like 20 guys pull like, you know, around 600 pounds. Like it was ridiculous uh, how strong those guys were in deadlift. Now, squats, if we were squatting and there was a guy that wasn't a starter and he felt really good, he said, Coach, I feel great today. I want to go up. We'd let him go up. Yeah. Those older guys, we didn't squat heavy with them. Now, and it worked for us because we, I mean, we had a bunch of guys, we had some dudes on that team. Yeah. And then after those deadlifts, we do some upper back work. You know, that was an area, you know, the thoracic part of the spine in the back. And we would alternate between seated low rows and chin ups or, you know, some type of row, dumbbell rows, barbell rows, seated low rows, et cetera. Now, on Thursday, the guys were, they, they weren't sore from the game anymore. They're more, you know, their mindset on a Thursday, hey, we got, you know, we got two days left and we're playing. So we would do cleans. We started every workout with cleans and that, um, you know, their injury status uh, determined if they were going to do hang cleans or power cleans. Uh, we preferred power cleans over hang cleans because of the stuff that we got from tracking the barbell with perch. So we did power cleans on that day. And then that was our heavy bench day. That kind of set the tone, you know, uh, for the game. Uh, so heavy cleans, 
uh, heavy bench. Uh, the cleans, though, we controlled the velocity. If it got too slow, you know, we had what we call velocity stops, and we did the same thing on bench. Uh, if the barbell slowed down too much, and some for some guys, that bar would slow down at 80%. Some guys, it would slow down at 75%. So it just was determined by their physical state. After that, uh, we would do a single a single leg movement uh, that changed every week. Uh, it was always some type of dumbbell or plate loaded uh, single leg movement. And one that our guys liked a lot was holding, you know, 10, 15, 20 or 25 kilogram weights over their head. It gave them some isometric work in the upper body, uh, but a lot of different type of split squats uh, lunges, etc., and then we did hamstring work, and then after that we did our CBS, ABC, and ESPN arm and shoulders work uh, for the TV camera, and um, that was it. <laughs> you know, yeah. Monday's workout lasted probably 30, 35 minutes. Uh, Thursday's workout would be a little bit longer because some of those guys would sit over there and do curls and triceps forever. And then uh, we had the guys that came in on Friday. Now, those guys would snatch, they would clean, they would jerk, and then we would do front squats. No running whatsoever. Uh, but they would snatch, clean, jerk, and front squat. on, um, And then do a little bit of back work, like uh, some um, hypers or reverse hypers or something like that. Okay. Um, and that was it. Okay. And then Good, good. Uh, so what I was going to say, and then uh, so we would download. Uh, that was something that was important to us. Uh, and I think, you know, because you can't, you can't climb, 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 climb. You can't. You got to back off. You got to give them the time to rest. Now, uh, and I'd never been around a football coach that would do this, but when Coach Saban started coaching here, he would build those rest weeks in based on our schedule. So he would look at the schedule and he would say, okay, we're going to, and we wouldn't even, and so we wouldn't practice on a Monday. So um, he would give them Monday off. He would look at the schedule, look at how many road games you had back to back, look at how many consecutive games that you had before an open date. And then he would give them that Monday off. We wouldn't even practice. Uh, they'd come over for a little bit and watch film and then he'd let them go. And then practice was cut short, and it didn't matter who was who we were playing that week. Did not matter. He'd get cut practice by a couple of periods that week, and then I would cut back in the weight room. Uh, but then after he left, uh, it was always climb, 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 climb. So I had to build that into my schedule. So um, every time we, if we, I would build them in every four weeks regardless. Um, and if we had two consecutive, and I learned this from Coach Saban, if we had two consecutive road games, uh, I would download the week because for, especially now, and I could have been, we could have benefited this from Miami. And I, and, and I'm thinking about it now with USC and UCLA joining the Big Ten or, or whatever the conference is, those guys are going to be traveling. So when I was at Miami, our closest away game besides Florida State was Virginia Tech. 
And so we would fly sometimes, you know, we would fly to Boston to play Boston College and then follow that up the next week flying to New Jersey to play Rutgers. And that, and, you know, we're flying from Miami, man. That's a long flight. And we'd get home at, you know, three or four o'clock in the morning sometimes. So we, in college, even in the SEC, and because, you know, when you go on a road game, you don't sleep as well. A lot of the hotels and uh, no knock against um, the state of Mississippi, but there ain't a lot of nice places to stay around Oxford or Mississippi state and the state school gets the best hotel. Even when we played the Florida Gators, we would stay in Ocala. And so that's almost an hour bus ride from the stadium. And then you can't fly out of those cities either with a plane filled with equipment and, uh, you know, big, big, big old football players. I almost let one slip there for a second. So <laughs> you have to build in recovery weeks within the season to make sure that those guys are recovering from travel, the, the wear and tear of playing in the SEC and in high school too. So I think you have to build in recovery days with that as well. Okay, perfect, Coach. Now I'm on kind of next one. You've mentioned a little bit here, and I've heard you mention in other stuff you talked about, um, and I think it's becoming a lot more prevalent or uh, especially high school coaches are becoming more aware of it is the importance of jumping in general, just yeah. uh, uh, just jumping. And, and yeah. then, so from an applicable standpoint, obviously you're just, you're not everything or you just jump straight in the air, but like, I mean, what is your recommendation in terms of jumping? Is it a lot of broad jumps, a lot of box jumps, a lot of depth jumps? How do you approach jumping or recommend high school yeah. coaches approach jumping? Okay. So Yuri Verkashansky, uh, the, uh, a great Russian sports scientist is the one who uh, started plyometrics and he called it shock training and uh, most of it had to do with depth jumps most of all of his research uh, was depth jumps and I still to this day uh, I don't you know we did a lot of other types of jumps but I think the king of all jumps is the depth jump and, um, but, you know, even with weightlifters and track and field guys, they didn't let anyone over a hundred kilos perform depth jumps. And the benefit of a depth jump is that when you step off a box, uh, because of the amount of, uh, force that is, or kinetic energy that is developed when you step off a box and hit the ground, then the resulting forces are greater than you can do if you were to squat, clean, jerk, or any other exercise. Uh, but the heavier you are when you step off that box and hit the ground and jump, the more stressful it is on all of your body, okay? Yeah. Whether it be your ankle, where your feet starts with the feet, ankles, knees, low back, and up. So depth jumps are something that are very stressful and uh, you got to be, I'm not going to say, you know, they used to say you got to squat two times your body weight. I'm not of that belief, but I don't think young, uh, fleshy, uh, underdeveloped uh, athletes should perform that even older, you know, we didn't, and we didn't do depth jumps with our linemen 
and some big linebackers. If you're a linebacker that you played for us, probably 220 was the cutoff for all linebackers, tight ends, or anyone. Uh, but now our receivers and defensive backs uh, and running backs that were under 220 um, and, you know, the, the tight ends of today, those big, long, tall guys that, you know, um, those guys would do depth jumps. And I'd still, again, I'm going to say it, I, I believe that that is the king of jumps and really the only true plyometric because we measured a lot of this stuff with um, – uh, with the tendo and perch and all that. So um, you can generate some serious power and you can change a lot of, um, of the, uh, of the coordination and firing patterns and uh, muscle fiber types. Uh, you, you can change a lot of stuff uh, by doing this. Okay. Uh, but it's stressful. Now, now let me go to broad jumps. So, um, we did a lot of, well, let me say this about depth jumps. Let me go back. We did them in four. Well, so the Russians did a, uh, Medyev did a study where he did jump training only or shock training, depth jumps only. And then he did, uh, depth jumps combined with squatting and lifting. And then he did, uh, strength training and then followed that up with jump training only. And he found that the best method when if you wanted to develop the greatest amount of power in the lower body, they found that training with weights first and then following that up with only doing depth jumps was the best means to apply that type of training. Well, that really doesn't work that great in collegiate football. Great for track and field but probably not good for or high school or collegiate football unless it's for your defensive backs and wide receivers. But then they only did it in four-week blocks, and they were very specific. And these were with, with highly qualified, what they would call qualified weightlifters that, you know, that had, you know, several years of training under their belt. And, um, and then they were very specific about the number of reps that you do uh, each day, each week, each month for the four-week training phase. Now, so, so depth jumps are the king of all plyos. And, and again, in my mind, they're only really true plyometric exercise. And then everything else after that is jumping. But I'm not saying that jumping isn't good. So now let's talk about jumping. So, um the way we prescribed our jumping was when we were doing acceleration work, we were going to focus on horizontal jumps or broad jumps uh, because broad jumps are very similar uh, to the acceleration. And then as we started, uh, the acceleration started getting longer and we were doing more sprinting and more speed work then we would emphasize uh, the vertical jumps or continuous jumps or a series of jumps where the ground contact was faster. So we wanted our jump training to match what we were doing in our sprint training. So at the beginning of the off-season program, 
we would do horizontal jumps, primarily broad jumps, and then we would switch. We would go from five sets of one or two sets of five, and then, then we would convert to multiple jumps where we would do three consecutive broad jumps, okay? Uh, then we would progress to multiple hurdle jumps where they were jumping uh, and we would increase the stimulus where they were jumping over hurdles where we would lower yep. the hurdle. And we would, we never probably jumped with football players more than five hurdles. Um, and we would do sets of five. We would, you know, three, four sets of five. We seldom went, you know, we would try to keep it because of all the other stuff that we were doing, because it's the sum of all this that determines, you know, the training effect. So we seldom probably went over 25 reps per day. Uh, and that was with our best players. Now, our linemen, uh, we would do some uh, broad jumps with our linemen. But again, having those big linemen like we had, you know, big, you know, because we get those five percenters. So we had some monsters. Um, I didn't feel comfortable having those guys hop over hurdles. Could they hop over hurdles? Absolutely. But with carrying their weight and the amount of practice and lifting and all the other stuff that we did, I just didn't feel comfortable having our guys doing hurdle hops. So those guys spent most of their time doing seated and standing box jumps only because that's kind of like, you know, their play. So and seated box jumps, I think are really good. And then we would just do standing box jumps. And, you know, we had linemen that could jump, you know, 40, you know, jump up on 48 inch boxes safely. Um, so that's pretty much how our jump training went. Now, we would something else, another jump that I really like once you're sprinting a lot um, and you're working on your uh, max speed work and you can have linemen do these is we would take the dowel rods, you know, like uh, 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 closet uh, coat hangers, you know, what's those things? Uh, you get them at the hardware store and they're, well, you can get them 10 foot long if you want, but they were like uh, clothes hanging rods or some curtain rods. That's what I'm thinking of. We'd get wooden curtain rods or big thick dowel rods the size of a barbell. And we would do consecutive jumps with those. So, uh, and we call them stick jumps. And this is something I got from Coach Hatch, my mentor, um, you know, the great American weightlifting coach and Olympic, uh, he coached the, uh, uh, the uh, Athens Olympics weightlifting team. He was real big into these uh, stick jumps where you'd have the guys hold the stick. We'd do them in sets of 10. Now we would hook the tendo up to it when we had tendos. We'd set the tendo on the ground in front of them where they could see it. And so they knew how much force they were putting into the ground and the velocity that they were jumping at. Um, and we did a lot of those with all the position players on our team because those, um, you know, the ground contact time, uh, because we were looking for speed and not necessarily uh, uh, force. We wanted rapid eccentric and concentric movements and uh, there was no load on the bar and so uh those guys would really move fast and we'd do those in sets of 10 like three sets of 10 and that was it uh we would do 
in season, I mean, uh, uh, during the off season, I'm sorry, we would always do a four week uh, phase with our receivers and DBs and depth jumps. If we were doing depth jumps, they wouldn't do any other plyos off, you know, out of the weight room. Um, and that's pretty much it on jump training, but I'm a big believer in that and throwing the med ball, um, especially with young kids. And if you have somebody that's young, underdeveloped and fleshy, and you don't feel comfortable having them doing plyos, or let's say there's somebody that you feel the, you, you're, com you're, you're comfortable with them jumping on boxes, but you don't want them doing broad jumps, regardless of how big they are, you give them an eight, 10 or 12 pound med ball and let them throw the heck out of that med ball. Uh, cannonballs over, you know, overhead backwards, uh, I call them uh, thrusters, you know, in CrossFit, they do the front squat to press. Yeah. Uh, we did that with a med ball, uh, eight, 10, 12, even older guys in our linemen up to a 16 pound med ball squat and then throw it as high as you could. Uh, we had in the, in our indoor at LSU, before you walked in the weight room, there's a goalpost out there. And uh, the way the goalpost is anchored to the wall, there's some bars that, you know, you could squat and throw that med ball over the bars. So we would do that a lot. Um, and so med ball throwing, I think, can take place in many instances for players that you don't feel comfortable jumping. Or if a guy's had cartilage surgery or meniscus surgery, uh, you know, we were hesitant. Or if a guy had any type of low back problem or hip problem, we were very hesitant about having those guys do plyos. Uh, again, because of the nature, it's mass times acceleration. That's, you know, that's why you're doing it. My mass times the, the speed at which I fall from, you know, results in a lot of kinetic energy, a lot of force eccentrically kinetic energy that is built up and then into the concentric phase of it. So it's probably not wise that you have a guy that said, you know, some type of cartilage damage in the knee or in the ankle performing those because they're very stressful. That's why you do it. Perfect coach. I mean, that's, that's a lot more than I expected at all. I think so last yeah, year, I love plyos, man. I could talk, Hey, I could talk for eight hours on plyos. There's nothing wrong with that coach. My, one of my last two questions is, when I was watching that presentation at the end of each workout, it said, it said um, hang stretch and recovery. Yeah. Obviously, I know what stretch and recovery are. What does hang mean in that, that, that string of words? Well, so if, yeah. So again, this comes from my time, you know, and of reading all the, the Russian textbooks. Uh, there's a, uh, there's a guy from Livonia, Michigan, Bud Sharniga, um, that had, uh, he was an Olympic weightlifter and he went to Russia and, um, you know, back in the old days, you would always exchange gifts with the teams that you competed against and weightlifting, even in wrestling, a lot of the competitive sports, you would always bring gifts to the teams that you competed against. And so they would always trade weightlifting shoes or shirts or singlets or something. And Bud traded stuff for books, textbooks uh, on weightlifting. And he would come back and then translate those textbooks into English. And then I bought them. 
uh, it's called the Sportivini Press. And they always talked about um, hanging uh, after you train. So in squatting and in weightlifting, you know, there's a lot of vertical compression of the spine in squatting uh, and deadlifting and cleaning. So they would always have their lifters and they still do this. They would have their lifters hang from a chin-up bar and do a series of just gentle leg swings, rotations, leg swings, rotation, you know, and they would, uh, and you would always, you know, they would do it for 30, 45 seconds, and then they would let themselves down real easy, and they would bend and rotate and bend and rotate and touch their toes and arch their back, and then they would reach up and grab the chin-up bar again and hold it and then point their toes down and do a series of just gentle leg swings and twisting like this. And all that does is decompress the spine. It's kind of like, you know, that, um, what's that thing where you, uh, oh, hey, you lay down, uh, no, you stand up in it and you tighten the, the stirrups around your ankles and you turn yourself upside down and hang. What's that called? Uh, oh, um, uh, um, I know we were talking about coach. I just can't think about it. What name you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay. It's just like that. Um, and all it, all it does is decompress the spine because, and it's been proven by MRIs that after heavy squatting, the, uh, the, your disc in your back, they compress like this. And so all that does is just decompress the disc in your spine and, relax the muscles of your back and your shoulders it's just uh, and it feels phenomenal and so that's what that was so we would always and we would always do that now the stretching uh so at first we would have when i was at tennessee and well when i was at john curtis in tennessee we would always have our guys do that and then we would do a partner we would do a partner lower body stretch, stretch out the hams, the quads, you know, after the stretch, because I'm, you know, muscles work on a sliding filament theory here. Okay. So they do this. Well, the quicker they do that, the stronger and more powerful they are. So I'm of the belief in, um, uh, so Mike Gittleson, the great Michigan strength coach, he, he coached at Michigan for 20 years. I know Mike wasn't, Mike was against all stretching, okay? Because he said that a gazelle doesn't stretch before a lion chases. That is true. Um, so I'm not a big believer in stretching before workouts. You know, we warmed up a lot, man, and do a bunch of dynamic mobility stuff, but we never really spent a lot of time stretching before practice. I'd tell our players, if, you're, if you feel like you need stretching, get here early, stick, foam roll, and stretch all you want on your own. But when I blow the whistle, we're going to roll. And our warm-up started slow and got faster and faster and faster. And, you know, we did all kinds of stuff, but we didn't sit in the floor and stretch. But now after the workout, we'd sit in the floor and stretch. Now, when Jimbo got to LSU, Jimbo, Jimbo was, you know, no offense to those listeners uh, here that about people from West Virginia, but Jimbo is from West Virginia and he still thought people could get muscle bound. And I guess 
you know, to some degree, if you built up a quarterback too big, if your quarterback, you know, was built like a D tackle, then, <laughs> you know, he might not be able to throw the football. But Jimbo said, I'll let you lift my quarterbacks as long as you stretch him out after. And that's a bad Jimbo imitation, but Jimbo wanted to stretch. So we added a series of upper body stretches that we did with our quarterbacks. And then that morphed into a partner hamstring, quad, hip, upper body stretch that, you know, we did forever. And then uh, recovery was always creatine and a protein shake, go to the training room. Now, if you had rehab to do, we wouldn't hold you over in the weight room and make you stretch. You'd have to go to the training room and do your rehab. Um, but, you know, we would keep those guys in. And then, you know, that morphed into doing more corrective exercises, you know, rehab, all different types of stuff. So that was kind of the mini workout within the workout. Uh, but that's what hanging means. Okay. It's the hang from the chin up bar. No, I was curious. That's what I was going to guess, but I was, I was like, could be something else. I was like, yeah. could, could be hand cleans. I don't know. Could um, Yeah. Could have been a way of punishing guys who didn't do a good job in the weight room. And, and then this, this this question was not on my list I sent you. And um, I thought about it as you were talking today and you listed all the guys that you that are now at other places. Um, when I talked to Julia Garacio at, at Florida Atlantic, um, he talked a little bit on our podcast about you and kind of your importance to collegiate strength training. Um when you look at your career, just out of curiosity, do you look at it all through the lens of the impact you've had? Because, and I say that because I talk to any college strength coach and most of them either know somebody that's worked for you, worked for you, or worked under somebody that's worked for you. Um, and that's a pretty darn impressive accomplishment just outside looking in, do you reflect on that at all? Or do you take pride in how many other coaches or your, the assistants of yours that have now have jobs across all of college athletics? Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's my question. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Um, I would, uh, I would be lying if I didn't say that that was something that I took great pride in. Uh, but I'll tell you where it came from. Uh, you know, so I got into this because of my high school, my high school wrestling coach, besides my father and my, and my brothers and my mom and my mean ass sister, <laughs> my high school wrestling coach still to this day is probably the most influential person in all my life, you know? And if you saw him or knew him, uh, you would say, boy, that he, you know, cause he was a rough looking cat, man. But uh, you would say that's probably not a good example of what you want your son to be, but you, you know, cause he had a storied past and, you know, he, he would even tell you today. Um, but um, he, again, Next to him is my collegiate strength coach, uh, Jack Williamson. And Jack, he, he was only a head strength coach at Tennessee Tech University. 
but he was also an equipment manager. He also taught a course on strength and conditioning, and he was responsible for our entire program at Tennessee Tech, and he got burnt out. You know, and he wasn't making any money. Yeah. Uh, so he got burnt out long, you know, at way too early. Uh, but he made me want to be a strength coach. That's all I ever wanted to do. Uh, my mom, my dad, my brothers, they all had something else in mind for me. But deep down inside, all I ever wanted to do was to be a strength coach. And then when I took the job at John Curtis, the first thing that JT Curtis, the head football coach, gave me was a list of college coaches or coaches, not college coaches, but coaches that he wanted me to contact. One was Gail Hatch. Uh, again, uh, the, the weightlifting coach, he, he had a place here in Baton Rouge. Uh, and one of the most influential people, you know, probably top three most influential. Now, well, if you take Tommy Kono and uh, probably I would say realistically top top eight most influential person in the history of USA weightlifting. Um, the, the next person was Milton Williams, the LSU strength coach. Then there was Johnny Parker, who at the time was the strength coach of the New York Giants. Al Miller, who at the time was the strength coach for the Denver Broncos. And then uh, Alver Mill, who was the strength coach at the time for the Chicago Bulls. Oh, and John Stuckey, and he's who at the time was the strength coach at Arkansas and ultimately hired me for my first job at Tennessee. And he said, Tommy, I want you to contact these people. And, and I was thinking, man, I don't know these people from, I don't know these people from a hill of beans, man. They ain't going to help me. And so this is before this predates pagers, yeah. uh, predates the internet so the only way for me to contact him was either to pick up the phone and i didn't have he didn't give me phone numbers so you either had to pick up the phone and call him or you had to write him letters and so and i'm just going to use like coach hatch for example so coach hatch had a bunch of rental homes he showed up at the gym at four o'clock in the afternoon and he would train weightlifters from four o'clock in the afternoon until about nine o'clock at night. And I would drive from New Orleans to Baton Rouge and I'd get a van. And I, I used to bring my wife's car because I had a little video car. So I'd put them in my wife's car, but they stuck her car up one time, bringing them home. So she wouldn't let me use her car anymore because she had a four door. I had a two door. So I'd borrow a school van and I'd drive my weightlifters and football players to Baton Rouge. And he would help me train them and coach me up on it. And then um, these other guys like Coach Stuckey, I wrote Coach Stuckey a letter at the University of Arkansas. He sent me a, a package with all of his all-season training manuals. And then I took a shot at Johnny Parker. I typed, I wrote him a letter, and I typed uh, a question on, on a piece of loose-leaf paper, questions. And so each page of loose-leaf paper had the questions in them and I got them. I got them right here. I still have those handwritten letters from Johnny Parker, you know, and Johnny Parker is probably a top three. He and Al Miller, they wrote the book called uh, titled the system. It's uh, their system of weightlifting. 
uh, and those men hand, made me handwritten letters, and they're the reason why I'm here today. And so when I started coaching, I would go to clinics. Now they call it being big time, okay? And I've been in, I've been in those guys' positions before. If I were speaking at a conference and somebody would come up to talk to me, you know, especially if it was before the conference, before my talk, because I get real nervous, you know, when I'm public speaking, still to this day, I get real nervous. And so if somebody came up to me before I was speaking, because I'm a, and I'm a little OCD, I'd be so nervous, I couldn't even hardly answer a question. And then after, I'd be second guessing everything I said, so I wasn't a very good conversationist. Uh, so I understand in a way how if you go up to somebody and you introduce them, they might not talk to you all the time. But I'd had that happen to me. But I, you know, this is before social media and you couldn't get on there and say, you know, coach so-and-so from the university of so-and-so just big time me at a conference. What a sorry, no good rotten pile of who he is. That was before then. But I would say to myself, you know what, when I'm in the position that he's in someday, I'm going to go out of my way to talk to everyone that I possibly can. Okay. So that's the first part of that question. And the second part is, I figured out when I first started coaching in college that there weren't enough people on our staff to do the job that we needed to get done. And uh, we, it was me, Coach Stuckey, and there was two guys. I shared an office uh, with a guy named Dan Bailey, who is the uh, strength coach at, um, at um, uh, the school in uh, Omaha, heck, um, Creighton. He is the uh, head strength coach at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. And the other guy is Tony Allison. And Tony actually coached for a long time for the Dallas Cowboys as an assistant. And it was stuck in and we had a GA office. You know, we had four GAs. But we were in charge of all the men's sports then. And I told Coach Stuckey, I said, Coach, we need more coaches, man. We ain't got enough coaches. We're spread too thin. And he said, well, they're not going to give us any money, so you got to find a way to get it done. So – I started an internship program. The first intern that, you know, it was hard. He was like, well, how are you going to do it? I said, coach, I don't know. I'm just going to find a bunch of guys that will come here and work for free. If they're not going to give us more money, we got to find guys to volunteer. We'll call them interns. So it wasn't a couple of weeks later, this guy drove through his big old, big old burly looking guy come walking in our weight room and he introduced himself. He says, uh, I can't imitate his Boston accent, but he says, hello, my name is Eric Ciano, and I'm a student at Springfield College in Springfield, Massachusetts, and I'm on my way to spring break. Do you mind if we, if I, me and my friends watch y'all train? And I said, no, as long as it's okay with the head coach. So I asked Coach Stuck, he said, no, let him, let him, let him watch. So Eric watched us train, and I kind of talked to him for a little while, and I said, I like the guy. And I started thinking, man, this is this is a guy that could be an intern. So he left, and I told Coach Stuckey, and I got his number. He had a pager, and I got his number. And Coach Stuckey said, well, see if he'll do it. So I cold called the guy. And while he was in Miami or wherever, and I said, look, man, on your way back, stop by. I want to talk to you. So he drove back by, stopped by. I said, look, man, we want you to be an intern. And he played football at Springfield, and he was a strength conditioning major. And I think he was a GA and he goes, uh, when I finished my master's, 
I think he was in, he may have even been an undergrad student, but anyway, he said, I'll, I'll do it. I'll come here and do it. So Eric Ciano, he's now the head strength coach for the Buffalo Bills. So we've definitely picked the right guy. So, <laughs> you know, it was a way, it was twofold. It was a way for me to give back and treat people the right way and give back, you know, to what I think is the greatest profession or the greatest position in all of coaching. And then two, uh, it was a way for us to get more people involved in our program because the universities wouldn't give us enough money to hire the number of coaches that we needed in order to get it done. It's and it, So the best example I can give you, when I got the job at LSU, it was me, two other assistant coaches, and a couple of GAs. Uh, and, and we were all underqualified for LSU. And so I, uh, I called Coach Curtis because I'd been, I'd been out of John. It had been six years since I was at John Curtis. So I called JT. I said, Coach, I need the names of some guys that are in school here. Uh, he goes, what for? I said, I need more coaches. And I don't know anybody here. So, and they're not going to let me hire anybody else. So can you give me the name? So Scott Cochran. And Joe Danos and Joe, you know, I talked earlier, Joe is the associate director of strength and conditioning in University of Florida now. And then Vic uh, was playing football at SMU and he had graduated from SMU and was done playing and was looking for something to do. So, and then the other guy, the first, the first GA I hired is Jason Poeth, who is, uh, he works at the University of Alabama now, Scott hired him. And he's one of uh, Dave Ballou's assistant strength coaches for football now. And so I just started calling people up on the phone and trying to get them to come here and work for free. And uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, I am of, of, you know, I guess besides winning, you know, all the national championships and SEC championships, it's probably, and really, it's probably even better, a greater accomplishment than winning a national championship. You know, I guess you could say outside of coaching because, you know, we created positions for guys that may not have gotten the opportunity had not we not done it. So, yeah, super proud of all of those guys. And there's – that I can remember – there's probably 65 or 66. I said 61 the other day, but it's actually more than 61 because uh, we just had interns get jobs at UL Lafayette, former interns that they all got fired along with me. Uh, one of them, one of our interns got an assistant position at UL Lafayette. One got an assistant position at Jacksonville State. One was just named head string coach at Southern University. Uh, and he got the job at Southern University. He's never been a full-time strength coach ever. Um, but he worked his tail off and put himself in position to get that job. And so there's two other guys along with those guys that got assistant jobs. So, you know, it's like 65 or more. And that's just the guys that I can remember uh, that came through our program. Uh, and it's just, you know, it's flattering to the, and it's humbling.
at the same time, uh, considering because those guys, you know, and they would all thank me when they left. Thank you so much for doing so much for me. And, and I'm like, dude, you did so much more for me than I'll ever do for yeah. you. Uh, because many of them work for free, you know, and, and uh, we were able to pay the vast majority of them. Uh, we started a, a pay, uh, pay, we had a program where we could pay them and then they took it away from me and then we were able to reestablish it later on. Uh, but, you know, and that was the first thing that we asked every one of them, can you financially, because the last thing I wanted to do was to have those guys starve while they were here doing it. And so the first question was, you sure you want to do this? And then secondly, are you, are you financially able to do it? And those that said, coach, I can do it. We still work hard to get them jobs, you know, like easy jobs, like working in some law office or at a doctor's office or, you know, get there. And then some of them were, had spouses. We always got them jobs. Um, and it ended up, I think in 22 years, I probably only hired maybe five or six guys that weren't a part of, out of all the guys that, and, and girls, women, uh, we hired a lot of women. Rachel Bakeldeck, who this year was the first female to ever be a manager of a, a major league organization. She was, uh, she's the manager of one of the New York Yankees minor league teams. She, at one time, she was one of our interns here. Um, so yeah, it was a it was something that we worked very hard at daily, uh, recruiting and interviewing. And if we if I found somebody that I couldn't hire, I would try my best to get them hired somewhere else. Uh, in fact, our women's softball street coach Melissa Seal, she does um, um, uh, men's tennis and softball here at LSU. Uh, I met her. She came and actually visited us back in uh, uh, early uh, early 2000 and something. She was a grad student at Southern Miss University. And Eric Ciano, who was our first intern that, that we ever hired, he was the history coach at Georgia Tech. And he called and said, hey, I'm looking for uh, a young female string coach to hire. And I recommended Melissa. And so Eric hired Melissa at Georgia Tech as a, a full-time assistant string coach. And then um, I ended up hiring her back from Georgia Tech. And now she's been here almost 20 years and actually trained our football team for a while. Uh, so yeah, it's been, it's extremely rewarding, humbling, um, to, to have been associated with such great young men and young women over, over that time. Perfect, Coach. Coaches, um, one, his Twitter will be in the bio. Give Coach a follow. Co coach retweets and tweets out um, quite a few things, especially stuff other strength coaches are, and they're like a lot of pro J's of his. Um, like, share, subscribe, all that lovely jazz. Uh, check our sponsor, Coach Pad. Um, and then if you want to go back to anything, the show notes are in the – in the bio. Thanks again, coach. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you. I really do appreciate it.